hey and good evening to you. It is, I'll tell you, it was good to see the sun today, wasn't it? So good, so thankful for it. Um, it is good to be with you here tonight as we, uh, we jump into our, let's see, this would be our fifth week in the study of the I Am Statements of, of Christ. And uh, tonight we will talk about Christ being the way, the truth, and the life. And next week we will uh, we'll wrap things up by talking about Jesus as the true vine. And uh, so I'm very excited to be able to wrap that up uh, next week. And then the following week, Pastor begins a, a series on the hope that we have in Christ. And so uh, very excited about uh, all these teachings and different things like that. Um, tonight, I, I felt so guilty the past couple of weeks because I have pushed you all the way to 8.30 and then one night beyond 8.30. So I'm going to do my best to let you out a little bit early tonight, okay? And uh, I'm going to do my best. Don't hold me to that, um, but I'm going to do my best to uh, do that. If you have your Bible tonight, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 13, and uh, we're going to read portions from John 13 and John uh, 14. But uh, let's, uh, let's uh, ask the Lord to bless the hearing and the teaching tonight. Father, we are grateful for the word of the Lord. It is alive, it is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can divide between spirit and marrow. It is, it is a powerful living thing. And my prayer tonight, Lord, is that we just simply wouldn't go through a teaching as powerful as that can be. But I pray that the spirit of the living God would anoint the word of God tonight and that you would pierce our hearts and help us to um, just understand our Lord, the sayings of our Lord, help us to understand all of these things in a much more personal way than we ever have before, Lord. So thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your people. I pray your blessing over them and over our evening in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and, and amen. Uh, there was a man in the year 1227 by the name of Stephen Langton, and he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, during that season. And that year was the year before the man would die. And in the year before he died, he set out on a, uh, a super noble, but very, you know, labor intensive task. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to take the scriptures that we had, the canon of the scriptures that we had, and he wanted to make it easier for people to read scripture. And so what he did is he set out himself in a small committee and they went, they went through every verse of scripture, every book of the Bible, and they gave chapters and verses to every single one. Did you know that God did not originally put those numbers there? The scripture in the beginning were, were just scrolls and they were, they were stories and they were events that continued on and they were, they were all these documentations. But about this time, the man said, the people that need scripture, they need to be able to go somewhere quickly. If I say go to John 13, it will be easier for them to go. And so he set out on this quest and the year before he died, he was able to accomplish it. And that's why today when you hold your Bible and we say turn to Psalm 22, you know exactly where Psalms is and you know where chapter 22 is. And so in, in some ways, we're incredibly grateful for that. 
right? Uh, a few, a couple of years ago, my wife uh, bought me a gift. It was a, it was a set of the Bible, but it was broken into four different volumes. And it was the Bible broken into these volumes, but it did not contain chapters or verses. And I'm telling you what, if you've never read scripture that way, it is a completely new experience. You just read it in a different way as if in the way that it was intended to be read. And so as grateful as I am um, for the Archbishop of Canterbury to, to put the, the chapter and verses and it makes it easier to teach and to understand and identify where we're going and everything like that. In some ways, it can be, it can be a disruption to our reading. Because oftentimes what happens, especially in our devotional life, if we have committed that we are going to read a chapter of the Bible a day, oftentimes what can happen, we can read a chapter and think that that event is just isolated to that one chapter. But oftentimes what is happening is that that event is really carrying over to the next chapter, if not chapters beyond that. And tonight when we look in um, the book of John chapter 13 and 14, this is um, a part of, of what is called the upper room discourse. And it's just a series of, of events that are going on while Christ on his last night, he is with his disciples gathered in the upper room. It's called the discourse. And it's not just John 13 and 14. It's John 13, 14, 15, and 16. Some people even add John 17 in the mix. And so the point of what I'm saying is simply this. When we read these scriptures, these three or four chapters that, that, or five chapters that, that we want to pull together, we've got to understand that there is a lot of activity. There are a lot of things going on. Jesus is washing the, the, the feet of the disciples. Um, the Lord is instituting his supper, or what we call the Last Supper or communion, the Lord's Supper. Uh, they're gathered in the upper room together. Uh, Peter uh, is, is told that he will deny the Lord. All of these things are not events that are separated between time and space. All of these events are happening in the same moment. All of it is a continual conversation of one evening and the unfolding is how it all transpires. And what Jesus is trying to do in this moment, he, is, he understands that this is the last time that many of his disciples will ever see him. Scripture makes it clear that, that Peter, when Jesus was taken away to go to the cross, that John was the only disciple that literally followed him to the cross. Peter, the Bible says, followed at a distance so that he could see, but the other disciples were nowhere to be found. And Jesus knew within a matter of hours, these men are going to feel like they've been abandoned. These men are going to be left on their own. They are going to go this way and that way. They are going to be alone. And Jesus understood that there was going to be a traumatic event that was going to unfold. And so what Jesus is trying to do in this entire discourse, he is trying to, to tell them what's going to happen. He's trying to tell them the difficulty of the days to come. But at the same time, he's trying to settle their hearts. He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to help them understand. You know, in this portion we're going to read, Jesus says, listen, let your hearts not be troubled. I know that this is concerning. I know that it's frustrating for you, but let your hearts not be troubled. But what we're going to read here in just a moment is a couple portions from, from John 13 and 14. We see Jesus trying to set these disciples up for success but something's coming their way that they have no idea how swift or, or how severe and difficult that it's actually going to be. And Jesus reads to them these words. It's in your notes or it may be on the screen tonight out of John 13. Jesus says this. He says to them, little children, 
Yet a while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And he answered Peter, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why cannot I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now pause for a moment and understand this context. You have the disciples gathered together in the upper room. They have partaken of the Lord's Supper. The Lord has washed their feet. He's speaking cryptic messages about where he's going and they can't follow and all these kind of things. Peter is their leader outside of Christ. He's the most vocal. He's the most confident. It's apparent throughout the rest of the New Testament that Peter has tremendous leadership, natural gifting. Peter is their leader. And all of a sudden, the disciples are sitting in a moment where Peter says before everybody, he says, Lord, I'll follow you to the death. And Jesus says, Peter, I know you think that. But before the sun even comes up, you're going to deny me three times. I can imagine the disciples in their mind, they're thinking, wait, hold on, Peter? The guy that will like cut your ear off if you talk sideways to him, that guy is going to deny it. And I can imagine that some of the disciples sat back and they said, even Peter? Like if, if Peter is going to implode, there, there's surely no help for me. And Jesus speaks these words to him right after this moment. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And, and from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So in this moment, Jesus is claiming his divinity. Once again, he's claiming his divinity. And he's saying, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. And from now on, because you know me, you know the heart of the father. And Jesus continues. He says, and if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus is saying this, listen, the spirit of the Lord is among us. There's coming a day, though, where he'll not only be with you, but he will be in you. And Jesus says these powerful words to follow. He says, and I will not leave you as orphans but I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And listen to this, because I live, you also will live. Powerful, powerful stuff. Um, most of you know, uh, my wife and I, we have been married for 
a little over 20 years, and we have had an incredible marriage. It's been amazing. Most of you know that uh, we have five children, and if you don't know, you should gasp, like right in that moment. You should be like, oh my goodness, he doesn't look old enough to have five kids, and you're right, okay? Um, But my wife and I have five children. They're amazing. Uh, Our older two children are biological children, and our younger three daughters are adopted children. And I remember all three of the adoptions, they happened within, within a five-year time frame. And um, I remember the process, like going through the adoption. I remember, you know, all of the hoops we had to jump through and all the conversations we had to have and um, all of the emotions that were being felt. And I remember different parts, you know, in your life, you'll remember like distinct moments from this era and this era and this era. And I, and I remember all of those. But I remember distinctly, more than any of the memories, uh, I remember the emotion of the days that we picked up our daughters. We like picked them up from the hospital and and we drove them away. I remember the emotion of it. And and the thing is, is that um, we we adopted our daughters um, from the state of Florida. And there is this, there is this, um, there is this law that basically once you adopt a child, you have to, the child has to remain within the state lines for up to two weeks just so they can make sure they got all the, you know, the boxes checked. They can make sure that the child is legally, you know, able to leave and all this kind of stuff. And so um, thankfully, we have family that live in Florida. And so for those two weeks, we don't have to, you know, spend money on a hotel room or Airbnb or anything like that. We can just drive to our, our family. And so... Um, the, the thing is, though, out of, out of the city that we adopted our children from to our family in Pensacola is about a five, four or five hour drive, something like that. And every time that we would leave this city and we would head towards Pensacola, which is our, our hometown, I remember there were, there were moments on that really, really long drive. And I remember the depth of emotion that it felt like oftentimes would just sweep into the vehicle. There would be times where, um, you know, I would be driving and I would just start like weeping, tears of joy. And I'd look over to my wife and she'd be crying at the same time or my older daughter or my son, somebody. And, and, and it was almost like moments, these waves of emotion would hit us. But I'm gonna tell you, it, as amazing as it was in some part, it was, it was equally as difficult in part. Because it wasn't just that we were experiencing the joy of having a child, which that was there. That was the overwhelming. We were, we were so filled with thankfulness and gratitude. We were so incredibly thankful for all of those things. But at the same time, there were these other emotions that kind of would flood the, flood the vehicle at times. There, there were emotions of anger. At, at, at the situation and, and the brokenness and the, the frustration that, that would come on because uh, there, there's a beauty to adoption, but there's also a brokenness that most people never see. And to go on through that and to experience that, it, it's, a very, um, it's, a, it's a very emotional moment. And so there would be moments where we would be driving down the car and we would just be literally just singing praise to the Lord and saying, Father, thank you so much for our family. Lord, you have met, I remember this last time I was like, Father, you have made my quiver full, all right? There's no more room but just being so joyful and thankful and we would laugh and we would talk about the, the, the children's future and all, all these kind of things. But then in the very next moment, there would be like tears 
And there would be deep hurt and deep pain and sometimes deep fear because, um, you know, just like with any, any child, biological or adopted, you don't know what the future of that child is going to look like. There are so many unknowns and, and just so much emotion. And I remember driving in the car just thinking at a certain point, I'm going crazy, right? Like, like a normal person doesn't respond to these events like this. And, and I remember you've heard people say, I'm a ball of emotion. I literally felt like a driving ball of emotion for those four or five hours. And the reality is that you can probably identify that on some level. If you've ever gone through the loss of a loved one, or if you've ever, you know, really, if you've ever had a, had a child through birth or adoption or whatever, you've experienced some of those things on some level probably in your life. In this moment, what we're reading here in, in the upper room, it's almost as if every human emotion possible floods this room during this entire discourse. I, I think it's so, and again, it, it comes a lot of times to us reading and then breaking and then reading and breaking different things. But when you read these scripture in a flow, what you begin to understand is that there was tremendous emotion wrapped up in this evening along with Jesus, right? He has shut the public out. This is no longer, this is no longer a ministry to the people of the world. Uh, uh, he came to his own and his own received him not. This is a moment where Jesus has gathered his disciples together, his closest ones, to spend his last meal together, to spend his last night alone with them. Jesus, in the moment of emotion, he is experiencing a love that, that's so pervasive. The, the scripture says that, that Jesus, even on this night, in this discourse, the scripture says that Jesus loved them and he loved them to the very end. So there was this depth of emotion. There was this depth of concern and care. Let not your hearts be troubled. There was this moment of encouragement. But at the same time, Jesus is also filled with this, this moment of sorrow because he understands what's about to happen in just a few short hours. He's moved so deeply with this type of sorrow that later on we see that him cry out to the Father and he says, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Jesus has got to experience some level of betrayal, like emotionally, he's got to feel the sting of Judas's betrayal. In the same room, Judas is there. He is just as cold as ice. There's a callousness on his heart. Philip, God love him, is confused. He doesn't know what's going on in the world. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, Thomas is equally as confused. He said, Jesus, you're talking about going somewhere, but, but we don't know where you're going. How the heck can we know how to get there? We, we, we don't know, so there's, there's all this confusion. Peter is so determined, Lord, I will die for you. The, the emotion of courage has flooded his soul only to be let down when Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the way it's going to unfold. So Peter all of a sudden feels this deep level of discouragement, but the prevailing emotion in this, in this whole, the, the ebb and flow of all these different events going on, the prevailing emotion in the room, the prevailing vibe, has got to be the element of fearfulness. These men have given their lives to follow Christ for the last three, three and a half years. They have forsaken their families, some of them. They have left their careers, many of them, all of them, I would say. They have forsaken their reputation. They have done so much. And now all of a sudden, our spiritual leader says that he's gonna leave what are we going to do? And he doesn't give them any instruction as to what they're going to do. I'm sure there is a moment where, where fear just floods the soul. And Jesus steps into this discourse and he says, listen, I understand 
the frustration. I understand the fear. I understand the concern. But let me remind you of who I am. And let this truth settle your soul. It's a good reminder for all of us at different points of life. And so Jesus begins. And he says, listen to me. He says, I am the way. Now, what we find uh, by reading through the book of Acts is that you realize that the early Christians weren't really called Christians. The Bible says in, in Acts that they weren't called Christians until a group of them went to the land of Antioch. And then at a certain point, they were called Christians. But people outside of Antioch for, for a number of years, they were not called Christians. Do you know what they were called? They were called people of the way. And the reason that they were called people of the way is birthed out of this statement that Jesus, this is the depth of the statement that Jesus makes when he says, listen, I am the way. It had bore such, so deeply in their soul that they no longer identified themselves as, as whatever group of apostles. They identified themselves as people of the way. And so Thomas says, but Lord, of what way? Like, where are you going? I don't understand. And I think that Jesus, as he's talking to the boys, and he's saying, listen, you need to settle your soul by reminding uh, yourself of who I am. I think there are three different levels that Jesus is speaking to when he tells the disciples, I am the way. Number one is this. I believe that what Jesus is saying is I am the way to salvation. I think it's very evident, very clear that Jesus is trying to make this claim. Now, what's interesting is that not only in this moment, but all throughout Jesus's life, Jesus never shies away from the idea of being exclusive. The exclusivity of the gospel was never an issue for Jesus where he felt like he had to open this gate up for other people of other religions to come in and to kind of like mold and blend with this new movement that he was doing. He clearly says this in John 14. No one, nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, as he's talking about being the way, he doesn't, again, he doesn't say, I am a way. I'm, I'm one of the paths that will get you to the Father. He says, I am the way to the Father, right? So Jesus doesn't shy away from his claim to divinity or his claim to being an exclusive religion. He never shies away from that. And furthermore, the early church, you never see them shy away. As a matter of fact, Peter, the one who would deny the Lord in the beginning in Acts chapter four, this is what he says. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus never shied away from the exclusivity of the gospel. The early church didn't shy away from it. And I would go as far to say that the modern church should never shy away from the exclusivity of the gospel. Now, we live in a very... Um, a, a syncretized type of nation uh, uh, where, where we have this, this mindset of uh, plurality that, that 
All religions are kind of one element of truth, and this religion may possess another element of truth. But Jesus did not say, listen, I am, I am a part of the way. He said, I am the way. But as we take a step back and we survey, you know, the, the Western landscape of, of which we live, uh, I'm going to tell you, it's, it's a troubling moment. It's a, it's a deeply troubling moment. Uh, Lifeway Research, which is, I know that you can find statistics to support any claim that you want, okay? I know what the Google is, and I know that you can do that, okay? But Lifeway Research is not the type of organization that is going to flex the numbers one way or another. Um, they are world-renowned within uh, the, the Christian movement. They're well-respected, all these things. Last year, they put out a scathing um, report on the status of evangelical Christians in the United States. Part of that study, evangelical Christians, you, if, if you are a part of the Christian life family, we are an evangelical church. We, we, are, we are evangelicals, okay? This is what, this is what the study said. It said 51%, which is not a lot more than half, but it's a majority, 51% of evangelical Christians believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. Listen to me. Not 51% of Americans who are pagan and don't believe in God or believe in another religion or, or polytheistic. The monotheistic, the people that claim that Christ's words are true, that he is the way of salvation— they claim and they grab onto the exclusivity of the gospel. 51% of these people are saying, not necessarily. God accepts the worship of all religions because of his deep love for everyone. And I'm telling you now, that goes completely contrary to Christ's words in this moment. And not just in this moment, but all throughout scripture for sure. But definitely in this moment, Jesus is not saying, I am opening the door wide so anybody and everybody and worship whatever you want and whomever and, you know, whatever your belief system, he is not opening the door wide to that regard. He is opening the door wide to say, listen, if you want to get to the Father, you've got to come through me. You've got to come this way. Like, if you go beyond this way, you're not going to get to the Father. You're going to hit a brick wall. If you go this way, it's going to be a landslide. I am telling you that if you want access to the Father, you have to come through me, and no one else can provide the way or the path or the road to the Father, but I can. And let me tell you what, in a culture like ours, that is not a popular teaching. That is not a popular teaching at all. But let me tell you what, in Jesus's culture, it wasn't a popular teaching either. We live in a culture that's, that's you know, you know, pluralistic. And so there, there are all these different ways and we feel like, you know, all these different religions and all that. It's not popular in our setting, but Jesus lived in a deeply devoted, monotheistic, a very exclusive religion. And Jesus, if for him to say these words, this is why the Pharisees always wanted to kill him. He was claiming divinity that was outside of their law, right? Or in their mind, it was outside of their law. They, in the Jewish mindset, the only way to have access to the Father was not through a person, but it was through the law. 
It was through obedience to the law. It was through the day of atonement. It was the, the high priest taking you know, a, an animal and, and shedding the blood of the animal so that the blood would symbolically cover the sins of the people and then taking his hand and laying his hands on a goat and though the sin of the people were covered by the blood temporarily, that the sins would then be taken outside of the city away from them where the animal would go and die. In their mind, this is the way to God. Through obedience, through the blood sacrifice, the sacrificial system with the leader, this system is the only way to the Father. So for Jesus to step in and say, no, listen to me, that was the way, but now I am the way would have been deeply, deeply controversial to the people that were hearing it. But what Jesus was saying, and he said it openly, and he said it proudly, Jesus was not coming to do away with that system, right? He said, I came to fulfill that system, right? I didn't come, I didn't come to do away with the sacrifices of the lamb. I came to be the lamb, right? I didn't come to do away with the obedience, but I'm telling you, I am perfect obedience. And so for Christ to step into this moment would have been deeply offensive regardless of the culture that he was a part of because it was so exclusive and he claimed to be the only way. So we believe when Christ says, I am the way, he's speaking of salvation, the way to salvation. But we also think that Jesus is saying that he is the way to the Father and in, in context of, of John 14, he is also the way to the Spirit, right? Um, Jesus' saving work opens up the access to the Father, right? The scripture says in, in Hebrews that because of the work of Christ, we can now come boldly through, to the throne of grace to our Father. We now have access to the Father that before Christ, people did not have access to. And not only do we have access to the Father, but now we have access to the Spirit of God. No longer will he just dwell among us and no longer will he kind of come and visit every now and then and go away. But the Spirit is not coming to dwell with us. He's coming to dwell in us, right? Prophetically speaking, Job, which Job is one of the, uh, one of the oldest, oldest writings that we have, scripturally speaking, uh, chronologically speaking, uh, Job kind of falls in uh, somewhere in the book of Genesis. We believe that uh, it probably, the events of Job's life probably happened somewhere around Genesis 17, Genesis 18, something like that. So it's a very ancient manuscript. But without unbeknownst to Job, he would prophetically make a statement about Christ without even having the slightest clue what he was saying. Listen to what he says in Job 9. He says, he's, he's contending with, with his friends and all these different things. He's talking about the relationship between God and humanity. And this is what he says. He says, if only there were someone to mediate between us and God. If only there were someone to mediate between us. Someone to bring us together. And Jesus in this moment, he's saying, listen, I am the way to salvation. But I'm about to open up a door of access where I am the mediator, but I'm going to take you to the Father. And I'm going to give you access to my spirit. Jesus is saying these things. But not only is he saying the way of salvation, the way to the Father and the Spirit, but I think that Jesus is also clearly in John 14, he is clearly saying that he is the way to heaven. 
You notice for the first time, I, I think, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, for the first time in all of Scripture, Jesus speaks of heaven in a way that has never been spoken of before. He doesn't speak of it as a throne room or of, of you know, Abraham's bosom or of heaven. He, he doesn't speak of it in those terms. He speaks of it and he says, listen, I go to my father's house. In this moment, you know what Jesus is doing? On some level, he's humanizing heaven. He's helping them understand that when I talk about heaven, I'm not just talking about a place that locationally. I'm talking about a place relationally. I'm talking about a place that's not just paradise for all of us. I'm talking about a place where the Father is going to come and be intimate with his creation. Right? It's not just a place, as, as Pastor says, a, a condolence prize. It's not just a place of, woo, we made it. It is a place of depth and intimacy and relationship. And for the first time, I believe in all of Scripture, Jesus speaks of it, not as a place talking about a destination, but he talks about it relationally. He says, listen, this is my father's house. And when he speaks of his father's house, I know, I know in some translations it says, uh, I think in the King James it says, um, in my father's house there are many mansions. And if you're anything like me, okay, and there's no shame in this, um, but for the longest time, I used to like fantasize about that. And I would be like, you know, one day when I get to heaven, I'm going to be like, yeah, I made it Jesus and all this stuff. And I'll be like, all right, where's, where's the house? You know, and I'm going to go and I'm going to look and it's going to be this long driveway, you know, an ocean's going to be behind it and there are going to be hills. I'm going to drive down the long driveway and, you know, there are going to be like statues of myself, you know, as I go by and I'm like, I made it, right? It's going to be a 75,000 square foot home. It's going to be amazing. Fantasize about that. But to be honest, that is absolutely not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is not saying, um, you guys did a good job. I'm going to build a mansion for you. That, that's not what he's saying. Unfortunately, it's, it's, a, it's a poor translation, okay? What Jesus, the literal translation, basically, it, it says this, which is in, in your notes. Jesus says, I go to prepare a room for you, right? And that's like so discouraging, right? You're like, a room? I thought it was a mansion. Like all my life I've been deceived. God, why? Why? Listen to me. It's going to be amazing. It's going to, Jesus, uh, 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 Paul quoting, uh, quoting the Lord in the Old Testament, uh, I has not seen nor ear heard the great things that God has planned for those, uh, uh, prepared for those who love him. And so, so there, there's not going to be like this great moment of disappointment and all this kind of stuff. So don't, don't be discouraged, but I'm simply trying to help us understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is likely thinking of the patriarchs. He's trying to speak to the disciples in a moment where they will understand what, is he, what he is saying. They would not have understood what a mansion meant. You understand that, right? They, they would have been like, what's a mansion, okay? They would not have understood that. What they would have understood was how the patriarchs lived. They would have understood that the patriarchs would have been tent dwellers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these guys, they would have been tent dwellers. And as their family grew, they would have one main tent for mama and daddy, right? One main tent, kind of like a big living room. That's where mama and daddy would live. But when Junior shows up and he gets to be of age, guess what? We got to add a room. And so they would take their tent and they would go and they would take an animal. They'd take the, the hide off the animal and they would build another room for Junior. 
And when Little Miss Junior came along, they would say at a certain age, we got to make more room. And so they would take and they would go get an animal and they would them. they'd make another room for Little Miss Junior. When Little Miss Junior got married, if her husband wanted to and came and lived in the home and they started having their own children, what would they do when they started having their own children? They'd add another room. When you, when you go uh, to Israel, a few years ago went to Israel, um, it, it can even be said that Jesus may not have been talking about the patriarchs. Maybe he was talking about modern day right there in Capernaum where uh, they call it the town of Jesus, where oftentimes he would stay with Peter. Uh, I have a couple photos when, when we were in Israel of, I have one of, of Peter's home, and then we have a photo of what, what is likely dwelling places of, of other people that were not Peter, okay? I don't know, maybe we don't have it. Um, but okay, so this is the, the, the dwelling places of people that this was outside of Peter's establishment. And basically the understanding is simply this, is that in Jesus's day, uh, the structures in, in this region, the structures would have a giant type courtyard area, kind of like a living room type area where the majority of the family would do it. And then at a certain point, if, if your parents lived too long and they had to be taken care of and you brought them back into your home, what do you do? You build another room. Look at the structure. See how many offshoots of rooms that are being established right there? Take me to a Peter's house, the very next one. Peter's house was a little bit different. You can't really see it because this structure on top of it, um, I think it was the Greek Orthodox Church, I think. They basically... Okay, so Peter's house was once a house, but then it became a church in early Christianity. And so later in Christianity, when these people found out that this used to be a church, they built a church on top of it. And the middle part of the church is glass. So you can see right down into Peter's church. It's really fascinating, really amazing. My point is simply this. If you were able to look at Peter's home in this photo from an aerial view, you would see that there is a main room and then there are offshoot rooms that are surrounding it. What Jesus is ultimately saying is this. He's saying, listen, in my father's house, there's room for you. There's room for you. He's not trying to talk about their reward necessarily. He's definitely not talking about mansions in the sky. He's simply saying this, you know me, you've trusted in me. I am the way and I am gonna take you to a place and it's going to be my father's house. And when I get to my father's house, we're gonna make room for you. And you're not gonna live on some offshoot that's way on the other side of town. We're gonna to make room for you in the immediate vicinity. It's an incredible concept that Jesus is trying to communicate here. Now, I think it's important that we keep in mind heaven for ourselves. I think that we don't think about heaven enough in modern day Christianity. I, I think that we need to camp out sometimes in the, in the end portions of revelation and just soak in what heaven and the glory of God is gonna be like. Um, but I think it's important for us to keep in mind that when Jesus is speaking to Peter and he's saying, Peter, my father's got room for you. He's also speaking to me and he's also speaking to you. And he's saying, listen, there's room. And it's not just room, but it's room that's gonna be specifically made for you. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, right? Uh, when my, my wife goes out of town sometimes, and I know this is so bizarre, but sometimes when she goes out of town for a few days and when she starts to come back, I will go into like cleaning frenzy mode because when she arrives, I'm so happy to see her that I want everything to be just right. 
right? I want the coffee pot, like pre, I want pre-grinds in there in case she wants a pot of coffee when she gets home. I want the bed made. I want her bath ready. I mean, I mean, I just go through all these kind of things because I want her to be so, feel so welcome and so at home. I want everything that she wants to happen when she gets home to be there. This is what Jesus is saying. He is saying, listen to me. I go to prepare a place for you. Listen, everything that we see, the Lord created in six days. He's been gone for thousands of years. And this is what he told his disciples. I go to prepare a place for you. So we've got to keep in mind that heaven is a specific place. And, and let me just go into a little bit of what heaven is like if I have time. Uh, really quickly, let me, let me just explain the incredible nature of what heaven is like. A long time down the road, this is what we believe is going to happen. We believe that Jesus is going to come and rapture his church. We believe there's going to be a seven-year tribulation. We believe that after that, there's going to be a thousand years where Christ rules and reigns on the earth. And following that, that thousand-year reign of peace, we believe that scripture, if we're interpreting correctly, we believe that scripture indicates that God is going to recreate the earth, that there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And so if we can, and again, this is, you know, I think we're right, but you know, it, some things are based on interpretation. If we understand they're right, there is basically gonna be a moment where the Bible says that the new Jerusalem came down out of heaven. This new Jerusalem is like the dwelling place for the people of God. And, and I know I can't, this sounds like science fiction when I say this, but if we understand it right, the earth as a globe is going to be invaded by the new Jerusalem, which is a city, a type of city that is a square cube. It is a cube with four sides. The Bible says that the new Jerusalem is 1,500 miles in either direction. It's 1,500 miles this way, that way, the other way, and that way, and 1,500 miles vertical. Now, to give you a little perspective, from Orlando to Toronto is about 1,500 miles. From Toronto to Wyoming is about 1,500 miles. And from Toronto to El Paso is about 1,500 miles. From El Paso to Orlando is about 1,500 miles, okay? So basically the entirety of the United States which when you say that, it doesn't sound like that's a very big space. But we forgot about this, that it's squared. Scripture says that it was 1,500 miles vertical. Let me give you a little perspective. From where I'm standing right now to the closest level of outer space is 62 miles away. 62 miles away. You're talking about 1,500 feet cubed, right? The Bible um, talks to us about uh, the, the size and dimensions and, and all of these things. Um, but there was a, a guy I was reading, his name was Morris, his last name was Morris. But he basically said this. He said that, that he did the math and he's a part of a creation institute and all this kind of stuff, brilliant guy. He did the math and he basically estimates this. He comes to this conclusion. He says that a, that a, that a cube with these types of dimensions he says that you could fit 20 billion inhabitants in this cube. Now, right now on the planet, there's, there's, we're pushing 8 million inhabitants. He says in a cube this size, you could put 20 billion people, give them each 75 acres of land, and you would still have 75% 
of the cube to fill. That's how enormous we're talking this thing. But this is the new heavens and the new earth. This is not, I mean, this is the, the, the Jerusalem. That's not even talking about the new earth and all the glory that it's going to reveal. My point is this. In heaven, there is going to be incredible joy. It's going to be a place of magnitude and beauty and wholeness and wellness. It's going to be a place of glory. But there's also going to be a space that's designated for you. It's a place. Jesus said, I, he didn't say, I go to make some places. He said, I go away and make a place for you. He specifies and he individualizes this moment. And as he's talking about this, Jesus is basically saying this. He's saying, listen, if you want to be a part of this, if you want in, I am the way. I am the way to get you there. I am the way. The second thing Jesus says in this moment is he says, I am the truth. Now, really quickly, we're going to Rush through the rest of this. You will not get out early, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> There's an incredible book written. I cannot remember the, the name of the author. I know his last name is Fritz. Okay, Fritz, F-R-I-T-Z. But he wrote a book called, So What's the Difference? And in this book, what he does is he contrasts Christianity with 12 or 13 other religions. He talks about their commonalities, but he also talks about how they're different. It is definitely a Christian book. It definitely is, you know, lean towards Christians. But the point is, is that he just kind of takes facts and he says, this is what Christians believe. This is kind of how we're like, you know, this religion, but this is where we differ on so many levels. Out of this, what I understand, I've studied a lot of different religions for, for a lot, a lot of years, but this is one thing that I know. It's said that Buddha, in his dying days, he made the confession. He said this, I am still searching for the truth. Muhammad of Islam would say, I can point you to the truth. Jesus Christ would say, I am the truth. In other words, I'm not looking for truth. I'm not pointing you to truth. I'm telling you, I am truth. And for the hearers of this, it could, it could mean a couple of different things. I think it does mean a couple of different things, but let me just break these down really quickly, quickly for you. I think number one, what Jesus is trying to help them understand is that I am the truth of scripture. In other words, I am the fulfillment of scripture. I am the fulfillment of what everybody has been waiting for. I am the messianic uh, uh, being that everybody has been waiting for. Jesus makes such a strong case for himself that he is the Messiah and that he is the truth in a lot of different ways. But let me tell you, in my opinion, the primary way that he does it is through the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. We understand that Jesus fulfilled more than 300 prophecies in his lifetime, 60 of the major, major prophecies. We believe that he fulfilled those. But here's what's most fascinating about the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Many, many, many of them were completely and utterly outside of Jesus's control. Right? The, the prophetic fulfillment that Jesus uh, comes into Zion on a donkey I don't think he did manipulate it, but he could have manipulated that situation if he wanted to deceive people. And he could have said, hey, there's a donkey and I got to fulfill the scripture. Bring me the donkey. He could have done that if he wanted to. That's not what impresses me. What impresses me is the dozens and dozens of prophecies that he fulfilled that he had absolutely no control over. 
You remember when the Magi come from the Far East and they bring Jesus gifts from afar. That is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy out of the book of Psalms. Remember when Jesus is betrayed by Judas by how many pieces of silver? 30. This is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. When Jesus, just before he goes to the cross and he's being beaten and and mocked and all these kind of things, the scripture predicts, the prophet Isaiah predicted that the Messiah's beard would be plucked from his flesh. This is not something that Jesus could have gotten the Roman soldiers to do to him. This is completely out of his control. As he hangs on the cross, Jesus, the scriptures say that his his clothes were gambled for. They, they, They casted lots so that they could take his clothes. This was a fulfillment of Psalm 22, 18. There were so many fulfillments. Probably my favorite fulfillment that that Jesus uh, did that was completely outside of his control is where the Messiah was born. In Old Testament scriptures, uh, so many people wanted to point, where is the Messiah? Where is he going to be born? What's he going to be like? What's he going to do? All of these kind of things. One of the most important things was where is he going to come from? Well, in the Old Testament, the the scriptures speak to the Messiah coming from three different places. And what we find is that in Jesus's infancy, before he had any control over it, he fulfills all three of these Old Testament prophecies. Scripture says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But the Old Testament scriptures say that Jesus is going to come out of Egypt. When Jesus' infancy, his parents escaped to Egypt. And at a certain point in his infancy, they came out of Egypt. And they nestled their little families exactly where the Old Testament scriptures would say, in the land of Nazareth. And so Jesus, as he is fulfilling these prophecies, he's trying to get the guys to understand, listen to me. You've got to rest in the fact that I am the way. But I'm not just telling you I'm the way. I'm, the tr- I'm telling you the truth. Look at what I've done. Look what I've fulfilled. Look where I'm going. You don't have to wonder if I'm, you know, selling you a a bill of goods. I am telling you that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father outside of me. When you talk about Old Testament scriptures, I was reading a a really famous book. This is decades old. You You may know this illustration, but there was a guy out of MIT. His name was Peter Stoner, and uh, he was a physicist, I believe, and um he was looking at the claims of Christ, specifically the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus had fulfilled. And he was looking at the fact that Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies in his lifetime, um, 60 of those major. But in one day, on the last day of Christ's life, did you realize that Jesus fulfilled 29 Old Testament prophecies on one day of his life? I mean, really incredible. So this guy was trying to do the math and figure out the probability and all these kind of things statistically. And he goes in and he, he basically comes to this conclusion. He says this. He says, for one person to fulfill 29 prophecies in one day is basically unheard of. So I'm not even going to deal with 29. For whatever reason, he decided to base his study off this, off one person in their lifetime fulfilling eight Old Testament prophecies. One lifetime, Jesus did 29 in a day. This guy statistically broke it down and this is what his calculations came to. He said the probability of one person being able to fulfill eight prophecies in their entire lifetime would be the probability of one out of 10 to the 17th power. Now, perspective. One out of 10 with 17 zeros 
behind it. Now, most of us can't find, I know my mind is too small to, to think like, what, what does that look like? I, I, I don't know, okay? So this guy knew that he was gonna be writing to guys like me. And so he broke it down and he gave us this incredible visual illustration about the probability factor. And this is what he said. He said, if you could go to the state of Texas and clear it out, clear out all of the buildings, all the land, everything like that, and you could make it completely fat. He said, if you were able to do that and you were able to take silver dollars and stack them two feet high across the entire state of Texas, two feet high of silver dollars. Have you ever driven in Texas? It is the land that never ends, okay? Um, it, it just goes on forever and ever and ever. He says, if you were able to clear out the land of Texas and fill it knee deep with silver coins, and you had the ability to take one of those coins, put a red X on it, throw it right in the middle of the state of Texas, watch it kerplunk, and if you had a machine that could go in there and stir up the entire state of Texas, take a person, blindfold them, send them on their way through the state of Texas, and tell them to bend over whenever they wanted and pick up a coin. The probability of one person fulfilling eight prophecies in their lifetime is the same probability of this person picking up that coin that has the X on it. Incredible, incredible stuff. As Jesus is telling them he's the way, he's saying, listen, I'm the way, but I'm also the truth. I can be trusted because I am the truth of scripture. He's also the truth of the spirit. Following the truth of the spirit, he is the truth of all things, ultimately. We believe that Jesus, in Christ, we find all knowledge, all truth, all wisdom. He is omniscient. Nothing ever takes him by surprise. He knows in from the beginning. He knows all things. All truth is encompassed in the person of Jesus. He says, I am the way, I am the truth. And then he wraps it up by saying, I am the life. Now, in scripture, we have two different types of life that are spoken of in, in the New Testament. The first one is a biological type of life. The second type of life is a spiritual type of life. I think what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I, I do think that Jesus is speaking to the biological life. He's saying, look, without me, there is no life, right? Uh, Paul would say, there's nothing that's been created that wasn't created through him, in him and through him, all things have their being. Jesus, I do believe, was saying, without me, nothing can exist and, and live. But I think Jesus was specifically, in the Greek, he was specifically talking about what we call, it's a Greek word called zoe, zoe life, which is eternal life. It's, it's the spiritual life. Uh, uh, Gene Edwards, he's an author, he would, he would describe it visually like this. He would talk about Adam and Eve and when God created them, that you know, he created Adam and Adam's lifeless body was there. But when, when, the, when the breath of God was breathed into the nostrils of Adam, that all of a sudden a light began to permeate through the flesh of Adam and, and his spirit man began to, to live. But then at the fall of man, his spirit died. His spirit went dim. Jesus is here and he's talking to the disciples. And I believe he's saying, listen, without me, there's no life. But I'm also telling you this, without me, that beam will never come back to life. But when you tap into the Zoe life, when you tap into the eternal life that I offer you, it's a light that cannot be put out. There's no one that can grip you out of the Father's grasp. This light is an everlasting light that leads to everlasting life. C.S. Lewis would say it like this. He would say that 
uh, let me just read it. He says, a man who has changed from having bios or, or the natural life to zoe life would have gone through as big of a change as a statue would have changed from being a carved stone into a real man. And that is precisely, listen to this, that is precisely what Christianity is all about. We are statues. And there is a rumor, I love Lewis, there is a rumor going around that some of us are someday going to come to life. He says we are statues. We are statues. We are dead in spirit. But there's a rumor that this eternal life is going to kick in. We're going to go from statues to living, bringing vibrant beings. And that light that's inside us, though this bios may die, this is a way it never will. And Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the life. And this is, again, and nobody comes to, to the Father. Nobody gains access to that eternal light except going through me. And so in this statement, Jesus emphatically, unapologetically, in one of the most intimate of settings, is calming the hearts of the disciples. He's getting them not to be so nearsighted. Like, stop looking at everything that's directly in front of you. Sometimes, as Paul said, don't just focus on the things of earth, but focus on the things of heaven. Understand there's a day coming. I've made a way. This, this life is not all that there is. There's more. You can have life now. Amazing life. But this life is not as good as it gets if you trust in the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your goodness. I'm grateful, Lord, for this truth that is so powerful that it, it truly has the power to shift a person's life. It does have the power to take us from stone into vibrant beings. And I'm so grateful for that today. But I think my prayer tonight, Lord, is that as much as anything, is that you'll remind us of these truths. In a moment when emotions can be all over the place due to a pandemic or politics or whatever, just regular life. My prayer, Father, is that you will help us to set our eyes on something that's to come. That you will help us, Lord, to rest in the fact that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And to have our complete and utter confidence in that. I want to pray for us, Lord, that you will impart that type of peace to us, Lord. Peace that transcends even the most difficult of times. And Lord, we will thank you. We will bless you for being the way, the truth, and the life in Christ's name. Amen. Amen and amen. The Lord bless you. Thank you for being here tonight. Next Wednesday, we will wrap up the series and uh, we will look forward to seeing you guys on Sunday. Love you so much. Thank you.